Hey, good morning, family. It's good to uh, sort of be together. We're going to worship together this morning, sing a few songs, and uh, we hope you're all well. We hope you're healthy and staying hopeful. And we sure miss uh, getting to sing all together, worship together. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you make ways for us to uh, connect with you and with each other, even in times of trouble. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that wherever we go, we are never alone, and that you are with us. And we know that you're with us right now. So, Lord, uh, we just want to shine a light on you, say that we love you, we're thankful, we're grateful, and we know that you are... Um, walking through these days with us. So uh, be lifted up, be glorified. We thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.
series now in the Psalms, and the big picture and aim that we're looking at in this is really trying to equip ourselves with the proper tools to pray. We realize through the midst of this pandemic that we've been facing is a deeper need to have the tools in order to pray, to seek God. And what we've discovered is that the Psalms actually provide a really unique template and uh, language and vocabulary for us to be able to go to God with our challenges and hardships and fears and worries and complaints and bring them before the Lord. So what I want to do right now is jump into the psalm that we'll be looking at today, which is Psalm 22. I want to read just a segment of it. It's a really lengthy psalm, so I'm not going to read through the entire psalm. I'm just going to read through the first portion of it. It should be familiar to most of you, especially if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, because it is the psalm that Jesus actually quotes from the cross just before he dies. Uh, it's one of seven final statements that Jesus makes just before giving up his life on the cross as followed by his resurrection. So what I'm going to read is beginning at verse 1, go down about verse 8, so you can just follow along if you would like, or if you would want, you can just mute it right now and you can read this amongst your, amidst yourself as we jump into this. So Psalm 22, verse 1 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. Verse 6, he goes on to say, but I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads and they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. I want to begin basically with a hypothetical situation that has to do with, let's just say, I have been attempting to call you or to get in contact with you, but every single time I do that, there's no reply or no response. So uh, fast forward a little bit into the future, and I run into you at Trader Joe's in the line outside as we're waiting to get in. We're all having masks on. We're all just chilling out front, and I see you, and all of a sudden I walk up to you, and in the context of the conversation, I say to you something along the lines of, 
hey, I texted you, but you didn't reply. I emailed you, but the, I got nothing back but crickets. I've called you several times. I've left voice messages. I've Facebook messaged you. I've written on your Facebook wall. I've Instagram messaged you. We can go down a list over and over again, and nothing has ever come in return. What is wrong with you? Why are you avoiding me? So in that hypothetical situation, um, my question to you would be, how would you respond in that moment, in that line of accusation? I think most of us, if we're really honest, we would feel somewhat offended. Like, how dare you <laughs> say something like that? Um, we would feel a, a, a sense of like, that's unfair. We are get frustrated. Maybe if you really are avoiding that person, um, it now has brought an issue to light that needs to be rectified and dealt with. But the point that I would make is this is exactly the type of language that the psalmist actually uses with God. And for some of us, we might feel a little bit shock and awe over that reality and maybe even some degree uh, a bit of offense, like how dare someone even suggest that the psalmist talks to a holy God like that. But I want to suggest to you is that this is exactly what Psalm 22 unpacks for us. I think what it does is it reveals to us a type or a form of praying to God that many of us, I think, seldom ever really engage upon or really ever wrestle with or process with regard to. So in other words, uh, when we think of prayer, when we think of suffering or hardship or difficulty, one of the very first go-to forms of prayer I think that many of us just do is we immediately jump to what we would just commonly call this petition. We would say it has to do with asking God for something. God, deliver me. God, give me this. God, rescue me from that. God, save me from this issue. And all of that's important and all of it plays into the psalm, which we'll read in just a moment. But it's not all of it. In other words, I think if that's all that we typically go to in our praying to God, we're not really availing ourselves of the full scope um, and uh, items and tools that should be in our toolbox. So my hope this morning would be to really uh, wrestle, look at, um, observe how the psalmist wrestles with God in the midst of this thing. The language that's basically used for this type of psalm is called lament. It's a psalm of lament. There's about 50 psalms like this throughout the entire um, book of psalms. And it, it represents a certain way of coming to God and bringing complaint to God and really just laying at God's feet. But um, so hold on to that thought real quick, and I want to re-enter into that in just a moment. But in general, when we typically think about in our culture, when someone goes through suffering or hardship or pain or loss or grief, um, how do we typically respond? I would suggest there's one of two ways in which we as Westerners generally respond to grief and pain or loss or hardship um, or crisis and resolution or chaos and order or suffering in God is we either do one thing. We either deny it, which comes across in a variety of different ways. Uh, most common is, you know, when you ask someone like, hey, how are you doing? They're like, oh, I'm all good. Everything's wonderful. But in reality, it's not all good and it's not all wonderful. You know, it's like if you press a little bit further, doesn't your child have some sort of like incurable disease? Oh yeah, that's right. There's that. But it's a form of denial. Like we're not allowing the true emotion of an injustice or a pain or a loss or a chaos or a crisis fully have the proper breadth of emotion that it should have. So in some ways we kind of feel like 
exercising or demonstrating any degree of emotion is not a good thing. But on the other hand, we can take this approach of just being nothing but emotional and not wrestling with it another way. So the first way I think we deal with this is either through denial. Um, and another element of this is what I would just call a false triumphalism, meaning, hey, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. Everything's hunky dory. Everything's fine. And like I said earlier, it's, it's, but it's really not. Um, and that does not help us. The second form, I think, of response is abandonment, where we just walk away from God, God's people, um, in total. And this oftentimes leads to pathways of just full-on deconstruction, where people deconstruct their faith. They look at the church. They look at other Christians as being nothing more than abusive or oppressive types of institutions and organizations. And these are people that oftentimes come out on the other end as agnostics or atheists. In other words, it's a form. If you look at sort of the, the kernel of what led to that, somewhere within the mixture of that person's life and experience is you will find a, a crisis or a form of chaos or a form of suffering that did not get properly processed um, at least in a way that is consistent with how the psalmist processed grief and loss. And then it led to that particular form of response as well. So again, both denial and abandonment, I would suggest, are two very common ways in which Westerners, we deal with grief and loss and chaos and crisis and sorrow and suffering. But what I would suggest to you is a third way. And this is the way of what we see described here in the psalm. It's the way of lament. And what we see with regard to lament is that it's a form of wrestling with God, turning to God, um, processing with God. In, in many ways, like I just read, complaining to God, um, not being afraid to put those emotions on the table where they should be and begin to wrestle with those emotions before God. It's not stuffing your emotions. It's not denying the pain or the grief and the loss. It's not running away from God and abandonment. It's actually pressing further into God and using the language that God gives us in the Psalms to work through this to a place of wholeness and health and healing. So with that being said, what I want to do is the psalmist basically breaks down into a couple, just two simple um, ways. The way that most scholars would have identified this is they would say that verses 1 through 21a, which is kind of like the beginning of verse 21, uh, it breaks down into the form of complaint. This is where the speaker is complaining before God. It gets pretty verbose. It gets pretty ugly. And when you read it, you begin to realize there's a lot of anxiety and pain and loss and grief that he's dealing with. The second aspect is that somewhere within between uh, within verse 21 is a pivot. And it moves from this moment of grief and complaint um, and crying out to God and accusing God into uh, praise and thanksgiving. And it's really this fantastic example of a psalm of lament. So my hope today for you, as you read through this and as you process and think about this, if anything, the big takeaway, my hope would be that you would at least have another tool in your tool chest in processing grief and pain and chaos and loss. So to me, what I would consider a success or a win would be to expand your prayer language Beyond just simply, God, give me this. God, take care of this situation. Beyond just simply request into other tools in that tool chest to help you process, just like the psalmist does. And as we will discover by the very end, as Jesus himself does.
So with that being said, let's jump in. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 21. Like I said, I'm not going to read through all of them. My encouragement would be for you to at least take some time to read through these. My hope would be that um, you are partnering with us and participating with reading through the Psalms. Again, this is not something you have to. It's something that hopefully you you want to. And uh, I think as you engage in it, it will be giving you this language and vocabulary of prayer and wrestling with God and pressing into God. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to begin to jump in and take a look at the first segment of this, which is complaint. Um, John Calvin, the reformer, said this, and I think it's really insightful, pertaining to the first few verses of the psalm, where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to what John Calvin said. Uh, Lest the psalmist severely sink into despair, and this is obviously the reality of what the psalmist is facing, total despair. Have you ever been in a place of despair? Have you ever faced crisis or circumstances or chaos in your life where at some point you look at the sum total of it all and it feels so massive and overwhelming and you feel so minuscule that you feel this wave of despair come over you. You're in good company because that's exactly where the psalmist is. But Calvin goes on to say, lest he sink severely into despair, he put into his mouth, I love this, a correction of his language so that he boldly called upon God, of whom he thought he was forsaken. Calvin's acknowledging the fact that the psalmist actually felt forsaken by God. But here's what he goes on to say. He describes, he has given the first place to faith or confidence in God because he allows himself to utter his complaint in order to give faith the chief place. His first, He first declares that he still claimed God as his own. Hence the words, my God, my God. That's what a lament is. It's not an abandonment of God. It's not a denial of, hey, everything's amazing. It is an acknowledgement that in spite of how horrible and challenging and difficult and chaotic life is, God is still my God. So what I want to do right now is as we read through um, some segments of these next few psalms together, is to take a look at what some scholars have kind of identified or described as sort of this bobbing and weaving between certain types of emotions. So, for example, um, some scholars would think of it this way, that there are within, there's an exchange of remembrance where the psalmist thinks back to moments, either in his own life or in the life of the people that he belongs to, of God's intervention, but then he's comparing it to his present circumstances and he's kind of like making these assessments that God, you work in profound ways in the past, but right now, I'm alone. Um, then he weaves into other elements of what he just describes as complaint. So let's jump in and uh, hopefully give you some examples of this. So first of all, take a look at verses three through five. Three through five is a great example of uh, what some have described as motivation or com- uh, motivation or remembrance. Listen to how the psalmist describes this. He says, "Yet you, Yahweh, you're holy. You're enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers, they trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. And you cried." Uh, and they cried, and you rescued them. And in you, they trusted, and they were not put to shame. It's very likely that what the psalmist is doing is he's locating his history in the people of God. And I think this is really important as we process pain. I think for many of us, we feel as if the bottom of our lives has, has collapsed out 
from underneath us. And part of it is because of the hyper-individualism in which we experience as Americans, meaning we can do anything we want, how we want, when we want. We make demands of ourselves, of our rights, for our own personal rights. And not that any of that is bad, but what it does oftentimes promote is an overwhelming sense of hyper-individualism. And when we focus upon that, we lose sight of the fact that we have actually belonged to something or a family or a lineage or a story. And so therefore, we begin to look for alternative stories. And what the psalmist is doing is he's reminding himself that he belongs to a history. Uh, he belongs to the people of Israel that were once rescued by Yahweh. And this is really important that when you are praying, that you remember what God has done in times past. So one of the reasons why the scripture is so essential in our fight against despair and anxiety and grief and loss is because it reminds us that we're not alone. It reminds us that we are part of a larger narrative, a larger story, that the chapter that you might be in right now is not the end. It's not the sum total of your life. There's more beyond just that. And that's what the psalmist is doing. So number one, we see him going into this moment of remembrance. Now he kind of transitions in verses six through eight to begin to protest or complain. Listen to how he does this. In verse six, he says, but I'm a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. And all who see me, they mock me. And he goes on to say, they make their mouths at me and they wag their heads and they say, he trusts in God, let him deliver him, and let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So he begins to identify the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty messed up, and this is not where I want to be. This is a horrible place to be. Now he moves back into motivation and remembrance in verses 9 through 11. Listen how he does this. It gets really interesting and detailed as he begins to focus on some of these other elements. Listen to how this kind of moves now. In verse 9, he says, yet, are, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. And it says, uh, on you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. And he goes on to basically remind himself, uh, again, by way of remembrance, God, you created me. I belong to you. But right now I feel deeply abandoned by you. Have you ever, have you ever felt that? Have you ever gone through some form of crisis or suffering in your life that at moments, you ask that question, God, what are you? Have you ever felt guilty about that? I think in some ways, I think in our American Christian mindset that tends to focus more upon triumphalism, we tend to think of that as being not a good form of prayer. But I want to suggest to you that is not rooted in the scriptural narrative. Um, what is more consistent is going to God. God is big enough. He's able enough to handle our complaint. And it seems to be what the psalmist is doing. And God doesn't rebuke him for it. Listen to what he goes on to now, verses 12 through 18. He begins to now focus on this complaint and this protest, and then we'll kind of move into the pivot, and then we'll finish. Listen to what he goes on to say in terms of the complaint and the protest. Now, he kind of breaks this down into three like little sections. Number one, he points out his personal anxiety. Listen to what he does in verses 12 through 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. They're like ravening and roaring lions. So imagine here he is feeling the sense of like, I'm encompassed by these monstrous animals. Again, it's not literal probably. It's probably more figurative language. But the point of the matter is he feels that what he's surrounded by right now is causing a deep sense of angst. 
Again, have you ever been in a place like that where you're surrounded by circumstances or situations or diagnosis or people that are against you and you feel that sense of like, I'm surrounded by these things? He's complaining. He's protesting um, before God. God, this is, this, is, this is where I'm at right now. This is what I feel right now. And then he moves on to the second little section here of complaint and protest, verses 14 through 15, where some scholars have identified this as more of like a physical disintegration. In other words, uh, he was moving from a state of uh, integration to now disintegration. Listen to how he describes, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He's recognizing there's something happening, uh, either a physical element, uh, whether this is metaphorical language or he's actually describing something. Again, this is where some scholars would look at this and say, uh, Dave, this seems to be identifying a, a, a murder. And David obviously is, this could be David, or if David is writing this, uh, how would he know how to describe sort of an execution? Um, and this is where, you know, most uh, scholars, especially New Testament scholars, would see this as sort of uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus, who we see this as what we would call a messianic psalm. In other words, pointing forward to Jesus. But nonetheless, I want you to just think about the anxiety and the moment that he's feeling right now, a physical disintegration. Now he moves into social abandonment, verses 16 through 18. I'll just read a couple of these. He says, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers, they encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They count all my bones. They stare at me and they gloat at me. They divide my garments among, among me. Um, what happens when they divide your garments? Uh, it's, a, it's a metaphor, it's a picture, it's an image of literally stripping you naked. Your nakedness is your shame. This is the, a deeply shaming scenario that the psalmist is, is either uh, experiencing and recounting or envisioning uh, that he's either going through or writing, obviously. But the point of the matter is, in the midst of this, it's, it's something that, have, that has to do with social abandonment, feeling completely not only abandoned by God, but also abandoned by all people. This is a human being in a state of utter despair. But not utter despair, because he's still pressing into God. Now, now we get to the petition. Now we get to the part that we oftentimes typically use as our number one go-to weapon. Again, like I said, um, definitely use petition, but don't uh, not avail yourself. In other words, take advantage of these other elements. Remembrance, remembering what God has done praying that, thinking about that. This is why the Psalms, I think, are such a, a helpful tool in terms of your prayer to God and working through anxiety because it forces you, trains you to think about the biblical storyline that you belong to, that God has exercised power in the past. And that means that the same God that exercised this power in hand in the past is also the same God that will visit you in the present and in the future to deliver. And that's what the psalmist seems to be doing. Psalm 22, verses 19 to 21, he says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly. Now listen to his petitions. Number one, he says, do not be far off. In other words, don't, don't be afar from me. Secondly, he goes on to say, come quickly. So come to me, but do it, do it quickly, speedily. God, quickly come to me. He goes on to say, number 20, uh, verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword. Uh, verse 21, then he goes on to say, save me from the mouth of the lion. This is, this is really the sum of his petition. 
This is four simple requests in the midst of a sea of complaint and remembrance. Complaint, remembrance. Protest and memory. And then comes his request. God move. God do something. And that's where I say uh, the pivot happens. Uh, verse 21, second part of verse 21, begins to um, change the entire tenor of this. Listen how this happens. Walter Brueggemann, a New Testament, uh, or, sorry, Old Testament scholar, describes this. He says, but when, but then in mid-verse, the psalm changes abruptly. Something decisive has happened. The speaker speaks no more of his distance but now only amazement and gratitude. And the entire psalm now shifts tone, tenor, from one of complaint, a protest, to now one of praise and honor and recognition of God. And I'll just read a couple of these and I'm, I'm done. Verse uh, 14. Sorry. That's what happens when you don't have your glasses on. Here's what it says. Verse 19. Uh, but you, Lord, don't be far from me. Skipping on down to verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Then he goes on to say, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Then he goes on to say, in addition, and he has not hidden his face from him who has heard when he cried to him. And he finishes with this great line, verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May the hearts, may your hearts live forever. And then he finishes with this final phrase, that he has done it. He's delivered. This is the image that we're given in this psalm. Um, what I find amazing in conclusion with regard to this psalm is that this was a psalm of David, most scholars would agree, that actually became a part of the actual vocabulary of the Jewish people. So again, go back to the very, very beginning of Psalm 22, uh, even before verse 1 starts. It just says something like this. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn. You know that song, right? The doe of the dawn. Yeah, neither do I. But what this tells us is that this psalm was part of the vocabulary and the language of thousands, hundreds of thousands, countless Jewish people that were grasping for words and vocabulary to describe their suffering. And they used just this psalm. We know from the account that describes Jesus' death that on the cross, Jesus himself uses this very language to pray in the midst of his suffering on the cross. And what I find fascinating about this is that this prayer of David would ultimately, even though it would become the prayer of countless others, because it was so powerful, because it nailed so precisely what people were going through in times of suffering, uh, that whole dichotomy of, God, where are you? I'm in the midst of pain. I feel abandoned. I feel lost. I'm trying to make sense of chaos and suffering and confusion and grief, and you seem to be very far. This is the very language and prayer and psalm that Jesus himself quotes from the cross. That Jesus would take this very prayer to himself as if he was joining in the company of countless other sufferers, self-identifying with those who suffer. 
Now, I don't know how you think about God or how you think about Jesus, but my hope would be that you have space and margin in your theological understanding that we have a God that may not always give us the answers to the why, but he will always give us an assurance that he is with us in the midst of that suffering. I think that's what it means to have Jesus on the cross singing this, saying this, speaking this, along with countless others. My hope would be that this would expand your language, your vocabulary of turning to God in the midst of grief and pain and chaos and crisis as you are trying to make sense of it, that you turn to this God that loves you and gave himself for you and demonstrated his commitment to you in the midst of this world that's filled with questions, not oftentimes a lot of answers. What he does promise to us is his presence. So my hope would be that this fills you with hope. And not only fills you with a sense of emotional hope, but from that hope gives you language and vocabulary on how to help other people that are suffering and going through hard times of coming alongside, showing solidarity, being present with those that are in the midst of that grief and suffering, and maybe even giving them the tools and the items that were maybe hopefully imparted here in this time of God's presence that will become our source of life. I want to pray that God would just help us as we move forward. So if you would like, why don't you just bow your head and uh, pray along with me. Jesus, we thank you that in the midst of your great suffering, that you chose this out of so many other passages throughout the scripture to pray as a way of identifying with the suffering and the grief and the loss and the pain of many. God, you know those that are watching right now that are feeling the sense of angst and confusion. Would you right now remind them that they have a family they belong to. And therefore, that gives them a future and a hope of your presence. So right now, God, be our strength as we move forward into this world, no matter what it holds for us. We thank you that what we can be assured of is your presence in the midst of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God is yours. Thanks, guys, for uh, checking this out.
Lord, we thank you for your mercy, for your steadfast love, that you are God with us. We love you, Lord. We're grateful. And everybody said...